We are now in week nine of our Untamed Jesus series. This is actually the second to last uh, sermon we're going to be doing in this series. So we're getting very close to the end. Uh, This is a series where we've been looking at the passages in the Gospels where Jesus does or says things that are weird, harsh, or out of character. And I think one of the reasons that we've had so much material for this series is because in the popular view of Jesus, uh, he's often depicted or understood as a very meek and mild and non-confrontational man. But when you actually look closely at the gospel accounts, you find a Jesus who, at times, can be very bold, very blunt, and who really doesn't shy away from conflict. And the passage that we're looking at this morning, I think, is a great example of that. Quick, can you guys all hear me okay? Just want to make sure, because the AC going? Okay, great, great. All right, so as you may have noticed from the message notes and and what Jana said, this week's sermon is titled, Name Calling Jesus. Because this week we're looking at a passage where Jesus calls a friend a name. And it's, it's a pretty derogatory name. In fact, I would say that coming from Jesus, it's probably the most derogatory thing you could possibly be called. And it's very clear from the context of the passage that Jesus isn't just joking around here. I know that sometimes close friends might call themselves, call each other derogatory things, kind of in jest, you know, trying to be funny. Um, and because everybody's so close, they understand mutually, oh, we're not really saying terrible things about each other, we're just joking around. But that is very clearly not what is going on between Jesus and his friend here. So the questions I want us to ask this morning are, one, why does Jesus call his friend this name? And two, what can we learn from that? So if you want to follow along in a Bible, open up to Matthew 16, starting in verse 21. Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, I'm sorry. (laughs) If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Let's say a quick prayer. Lord, I thank you for this challenging passage, and I pray that as we look at it now, you would give us insight into what we're reading. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through it, and I pray that it would touch uh, both our minds and our hearts, Lord, and would affect transformation to help us to become Um, more the kind of people that you have called us to be. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there it is, the name-calling incident. Now there's other places in the Gospels where Jesus uses some pretty negative names for people. He calls the religious leaders a brood of vipers, uh, whitewashed tombs, hypocrites, blind fools. But I think this name-calling incident is special. Because, one, it's directed towards one of Jesus' disciples, someone that he's close to. Uh, 
And two, because like I said earlier, coming from Jesus, this might be one of the worst things you could be called, to be called Satan. In preparation for this message, I, I read some commentators who actually argued, well, it's not really as bad as it sounds, because Jesus didn't mean Satan as a proper name. Uh, he, made it, he, he meant it in the literal sense of what Satan translates as. If you translate Satan literally, it means the adversary or the enemy. But my response to that is, is that really any better? I mean, <laughs> if, I, I, if I was interacting with God incarnate, it wouldn't make me feel good to have him call me the adversary or the enemy. Um, and honestly, I do think that Jesus was using Satan as a proper name because the other times in the Gospels where the name is in use, it does appear to be being used as a proper name. Um, but either way, whether it is or it isn't, it's not something you want Jesus to call you. It's a harsh rebuke. So what brought this on? Why would Jesus say this? Well, Jesus is explaining to his disciples that he's going to be rejected by the religious leaders and he's going to be killed. And Peter doesn't like that. Because Peter, like most of the Jews of his day, believed that when the promised Messiah came, he would be a conquering hero. The Jews were expecting a Messiah who would lead a charge into political victory and, if necessary, a military victory. So Jesus was really upsetting Peter's expectations. And I also think Peter just objects because of his love for Jesus. He, he cares about Jesus. And he hates the idea of his friend and teacher suffering and being rejected and being killed. So he protests, no, this is never going to happen to you. And that's when Jesus responds with that famous rebuke, get behind me, Satan. It's, a, it's as if Jesus is saying, look, I've got this narrow path that I have to walk down that my father has created for me. And you're standing in the middle of that path and you're holding out your hand and you're saying, no, you can't go this way. You can't do it. And what I'm saying to you, Peter, is you got to get behind me because I have to be faithful to this narrow path that God has for me. Now, why doesn't Jesus just calmly say to Peter, well, listen, I, I appreciate your concern. I know this isn't the way that you were expecting things to work out, but it's all going to work out for the best in the long run. So trust me here. You know, why doesn't he correct him gently? Why does he go so far as to refer to him as the father of lies, the enemy, the adversary? Well, I can think of at least four reasons why Jesus' rebuke is so harsh. And none of them are because Jesus is insensitive or unloving or ungracious or anything like that. So, if you're taking notes, this is the first part of the outline. The first reason is because if Peter's wish comes true, that would mean the everlasting destruction of all of humanity. Now, Peter doesn't realize that, okay, but Jesus does. And the reason for that is because if Peter gets his wish, then Jesus would never die. And if Jesus never died, he would never pay the price for our sin. If Jesus never pays the price for our sin, there's no atonement for our sins. And if there's no atonement for our sins, then we have no hope of victory over sin and death. So, Again, Peter doesn't realize this, but it's kind of like he's advocating for the launch of all the world's nuclear weapons, even though they didn't exist at that point in time, but it's kind of like that. Now, if someone were to say, I think we need to fire off all the world's nuclear weapons, 
a gentle response would not be very appropriate in that situation, especially if the person who was advocating it had any chance at all of accomplishing that, right? A reasonable response to a suggestion like that would be an immediate strong rebuke. No, no, that is a very bad idea because that course of action is going to have devastating results. And the same is true in this situation. Peter is advocating for a truly devastating course of action. And so Jesus openly and strongly rebukes that. Now, the second reason that I'm going to offer for why the rebuke is so harsh is not one that I can prove absolutely for certain, but I'm convinced of it enough that I think it's worth proposing. Second reason the rebuke is so strong is because Jesus is tempted to do what Peter is suggesting. Now, Jesus knows that he's supposed to die, and he wants more than anything to be faithful to the Father's plan. But, like any other human being, he's not looking forward to suffering and dying on a cross. In fact, that fact is made very clear uh, later in the Gospel, on the night that Jesus is arrested, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying, and he says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Let it be taken from me. In other words, God, if I don't have to go through with this suffering, let me be spared it. Jesus doesn't want to suffer. But of course, he follows that up by saying, Yet not as I will, but as you will. So I have to imagine that when Peter said this to Jesus, this will never happen to you. That same part of Jesus that would eventually pray those words in the Garden of Gethsemane leapt up in it within him, and he thought, well, I, yeah, I would, I would like to not have to go through with this. But Jesus recognized immediately that he could not indulge that feeling. He couldn't even entertain it for a moment. He had to immediately and forcefully reject it. And what I want us to notice is that the same is true for many of the sinful temptations that we face today. I mean, if it was true for Jesus that Jesus had to immediately reject a temptation, then often we have to as well, right, if we're actually going to withstand it. Um, if we even entertain the thought of indulging in some temptations, we're already on the way to giving in. And so if we're smart, we know ourselves well enough to know that if we're going to have any, any chance there of withstanding certain temptations, we have to reject them strongly the moment they're presented to us. You know, no half measures. We can't just be like, oh, let me think about that for a while, or let me just go a little bit in this direction. No, if we, if we want a chance, we have to say, uh-uh, absolutely not, conversation over, get behind me. Okay, a third reason the rebuke is so strong is because in this moment, Peter is being like Satan. Now, I realize that might sound very harsh, but when you consider the first two reasons for the rebuke, why the rebuke is so strong, it makes sense. Because one, Peter is suggesting something that would lead to the destruction of all of humanity, which is something that Satan would love to do. Uh, and two, the way he's doing it, he is tempting Jesus to do something he knows that he should not do. And that's what we see earlier in the same gospel when Satan tempts Jesus in the desert. Hopefully you're familiar with that story. 
uh, Satan tries to appeal to Jesus' desire and his physical weakness in order to get him to go against the Father's will. And I imagine that when Peter said, this shall never happen to you, it probably felt a little bit to Jesus, like when Satan in the desert was trying to get him to turn stones into bread and trying to get him to jump off the building and all those things. Uh, the spirit of the adversary, the Satan, was in Peter's words, whether Peter realized it or not. That same spirit that tempts you to go against the Father's will. And then finally, the fourth reason the rebuke is so strong is because Peter has a really important role to play in the future of the church. What I find so interesting is that right before this incident where Jesus rebukes Peter, he actually compliments Peter. And he tells him that he's going to have this really important role to play in the future of the church. It's actually super ironic the way these two incidents are adjacent to each other in Scripture, this compliment and then this rebuke. And I think Scripture loves to be ironic. Over and over again, Scripture is ironic. It's one of the things that I really appreciate about it. And this is a great example of that. But anyway, here's what happens in the adjacent story. It starts in verse 13, so if your Bibles are open, just go back a few verses. Uh, Matthew 16, 13, here's what it says. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? That's a title for himself. Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jodah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So that's a very different scene than the one that comes after it, right? Here Peter gives the right response. Who do you say that I am? He answers correctly. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' Jesus's response is the complete opposite of get behind me, Satan, right? It's blessed are you. And in verse 18, he goes so far as to say that Peter is going to be like a rock on which he is going to build his church. And all the powers of hell, or as he puts it, the gates of Hades, are not going to prevail against it. Uh, in case you're wondering why Jesus reminds Peter of his name, it's kind of a weird thing to do, and you are Peter. I know, we've been over this before. It's because Peter literally means rock. So it's like he's saying, you are going to live up to your name. You know, you are the rock, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. So Peter has a huge job to fulfill. He's got a really important job to fulfill. And that's why he needs such a strong rebuke from Jesus. Because Peter's supposed to be the rock, but if the rock is squishy then the whole building's going to collapse. Now, I want us to notice something important here. I think there's a, a really valuable lesson to be learned. Peter gets something really important right, and then he gets something really important wrong. He's right that Jesus is the Messiah, and not only is he right about that, Jesus suggests that the only reason that he knows this is because it's been supernaturally revealed to him. 
He says, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. So Peter has supernatural insight. And yet, just a little while later, after this, after demonstrating supernatural insight, he has the wrong idea of what the Messiah's job is supposed to be look like. And he gets called Satan. So here's the modern application, what I think we need to take from this. The same thing that happened to Peter can happen to us. And it can happen to major Christian leaders, too. So some can profess Jesus as Lord. They can be totally genuine in that profession. They can even have been led to that profession through supernatural revelation of God. But that doesn't mean they're going to get everything right. It doesn't mean that they can't make colossal misjudgments. So we have to be very careful not just to blindly accept things that people say simply because they, like us, acknowledge Jesus as Lord. I mean, Christian leaders, myself included, we're going to say things about uh, theology, about righteous living, about science, about politics, that's a big one, and we have to be very careful not to assume that they, or, or me, or any of us, just because we claim Jesus as Lord, are always going to get things right. Because even a sincere claim to faith in Jesus does not make you immune to thinking and believing the wrong things. I mean, when you think about it in Peter's case, it's so dramatic the way this is illustrated. Because in one moment, Jesus is telling Peter that he's going to serve as the foundation for the church, and the gates of hell are, are not going to prevail against it. So he is the one who's going to keep the gates of hell from prevailing against the church, or God is going to use him to do that. And then just a little while later, he's referred to as the leader of hell. He's referred to as Satan. So we have to be careful. Just because some guy on TV says he believes Jesus is Lord and he is genuine about that doesn't mean he's going to be right about, say, end times prophecy or about the best candidate to vote for or about global warming or about medicine. You name it. Whatever it is that he might be talking about, if he's talking about something other than the lordship of Jesus, there's not a guarantee that he or she is going to be right. And we have to be careful about that. All right. So those are the reasons why Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. The next question I want us to ask is, what can this name-calling incident teach us about how to live as followers of Christ today? Because I do think it has something really important to teach us. And I don't think what it teaches us is that we're supposed to call our friend Satan. But what I do think we're supposed to learn is that there is a certain mentality that we have to reject very strongly, that we have to be uncompromising about rejecting. And that mentality is this. What's best is what's comfortable. What's best is what's comfortable. See, Peter hears all this stuff about how Jesus is supposed to suffer and die and his reaction is an expression of that mentality, that what's best is what's comfortable mentality. Because he says, surely not. It's as if he's saying, surely God would not have this plan. Surely God would not have this plan that involves the suffering and dying. There's got to be a better, easier, more comfortable way. There's got to be. And so when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, 
I also hear something like, don't tempt me, comfort. Don't tempt me with the easy path. And so through this strong rebuke, Jesus wants us to learn that following him also sometimes requires us to say, don't tempt me, comfort. And the reason I'm so confident that Jesus wants us to make that application, to make that connection, is because of what he says to the disciples right after he rejects, or I'm sorry, corrects Peter. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. So, there it is, straight from the man himself. He's saying, following me means, sometimes saying, don't tempt me, comfort. The easy way is not always the right way. The right way involves picking up our cross and, to some extent, denying ourselves. But the difficulty with that is that the voice that tells us to do what's easy and what's comfortable is so persuasive, right? It's what we want to hear. It's very hard to resist. Especially in our present-day culture, we're very fortunate that we have lots of things to keep us comfortable. We've got to be the most comfortable people that have ever lived in the history of the world. I mean, every morning, if you want to take a shower, you usually get hot water. Like, that's wonderful. That's fantastic. Most of humanity has not had something like that, you know? So, in many ways, we are blessed with comfort. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it leads us into a mindset where we, we expect comfort. And we think that comfort is what we always ought to have. Um, and like Jesus, we need to be willing to reject or rebuke the voice that says what's comfortable is what's best. So let me give a few practical examples. God's voice might say something to you like, you should give some of your income to help those in need. But the Satan voice, the adversary voice, will say, well, you earned that money. You should get to spend it on yourself. God wouldn't want you to be uncomfortable. Okay. And then the appropriate response is, get out of the way, comfort. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So here's another example. Uh, God's voice says, flee sexual immorality. And I realize this particular topic is a sensitive one and uh, deserves more than just a brief mention in a sermon. But I feel compelled to bring it up because I think it's important to recognize how compelling the Satan voice is in our justifications in this area of life. So the God voice says, flee sexual immorality. The, the adversary, the Satan voice, says, well, it's not natural to deny yourself. You should just do whatever feels good. And the appropriate response to that is, get out of the way, comfort. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then one final example. God's voice says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Then the Satan voice, the adversary, says, protect your interests. Don't worry about your enemies. And what we mean to say is, get out of the way, comfort. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men.
And of course, those are just a couple examples. I mean, there's literally an infinite number of ways that we are tempted to take the easy path rather than the right path. And learning how to listen to the voice of God rather than the adversary voice, the Satan voice, is really a challenge. Now, I want to make a few quick clarifications, okay? One, I am not saying, and this is so important for me to stress this, I am not saying that whatever makes us uncomfortable is always the right thing to do, okay? That's called asceticism. It is an anti-gospel way of thinking, the way of thinking that just says, I just need to beat myself up all the time, and then God will be happy. Uh-uh. That's not good. Um, there's no value in being uncomfortable if it's not in order to do the right thing, in order to do what, what Christ is calling us to. But what I'm saying is, just because an option is comfortable does not make it the right one. Okay? Comfort alone is not a good reason to do something, unless you're buying a mattress. And that's okay. <clears throat> and then the other clarification I want to make is that in the long run, our sacrifices for Christ are not really sacrifices. We need to remember that. When we say, get out of the way comfort, we're not saying, I choose misery. That would be ridiculous. What we're saying is, I'm choosing something better than what immediate comfort would give me. And that's what Jesus did. Uh, Jesus didn't choose to go to his death on the cross because he was choosing misery. Scripture is actually really clear about that. It says that he did it because he was choosing something better than what immediate comfort was going to give him. Uh, scripture says he was choosing joy, actually. Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. It wasn't just because he was like, Oh, the Father just loves it when I torture myself. No. It's because he knew that by going to the cross, there was a greater joy to be attained through going through that suffering. You know, not to make light of it, but the kind of self-denial that Jesus is calling us to, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the self-denial that you might have if you were going through a difficult graduate school program or something like that. Um, if you go through a difficult graduate school program, for a while you might feel like you are choosing misery. You know, because you have to read all these things you don't want to read and write all these papers you don't want to write. But you're not going to school because you're choosing misery. You're doing it because you believe that the sacrifice that you're making ultimately is, is going to yield something better. Um, it, it would, the comfortable option would just be to like, stay at home and watch TV for four years. But there is something greater to be attained through the sacrifice. So is the school a sacrifice? Well, in a sense it is, but in the long run, it's not. So, by going to school, you acquire good skills. Uh, if you don't go massively into debt, ultimately, <laughs> it's, it's going to yield something better in the long run. In the, in the very, uh, at the very least, it's going to yield valuable life experiences that sitting at home and watching TV for four years is not going to do. So, we don't sacrifice things in our lives in order to be miserable, and that is not what Jesus calls us to. Uh, we don't reject comfort in order to be unhappy. We do it because in the long run, in some cases, that's what's best. Because when we're willing to make sacrifices for Jesus' sake, what we gain 
is so much better than what we give up. And that's what Jesus says. He says, whoever loses his life, whoever sacrifices for me, uh, whoever loses his life for me will find it. You'll find something better. So in a moment, I'm going to pray, and Steve and the band are going to play. And I just encourage you to take a few minutes to reflect on the question, what might Jesus be calling me to say, get out of the way comfort, to? What is the sacrifice he might be asking you to make in order to gain something greater? So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that when the temptation was presented for you to leave us in the dark, to leave us in, our, uh, in death and in sin, that you forcefully rejected it that you said, absolutely not. That was good news for us, Lord. We thank you that you did that. We thank you that you did it even though it was hard, um, even though it, it hurt. And Lord, we ask that as uh, those who are called to imitate you, that you would give us strength and courage to, to be able to do the same thing when uh, we're presented with, with temptations to take the easy way when there's something better to be gained by putting in effort by, uh, by resisting, Lord. And God, we thank you also just for the grace that covers us, the grace that we talked about last week. Um, we thank you that even though we're not always going to be able to resist, even though we often fall uh, short of your glory, God, uh, we thank you that you're there to pick us up and help us to continue going when we do. So Lord, I just ask that you would call to our minds any areas that you might be calling us to sacrifice in order to gain something greater. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.